The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. The two accounts of near-death experience I'm about to read to you appeared in the Narrative Inquiry in Bioethics, the NIB an influential publication of the Johns Hopkins University Press on behalf of the NIB Foundation. NIB Journal provides a forum for exploring current issues in bioethics through the publication and analysis of personal stories, qualitative and mixed-method research articles, and case studies. And we at NDE Radio are particularly proud of the role our associate producer, Lilia Samoilo has played in reporting NDEs as a major gap in medical care through NIB. As many listeners know firsthand, doctors, nurses, other medical staff, and even hospital chaplains have been slow to recognize the reality and importance of near-death experiences in the lives of their patients. To help correct this, Lilia worked with the senior managing editor of NIB, Heidi Walsh, to author an article and assemble the majority of NDE reports uh, to demonstrate the gap of medical care Lilia has named. NDE Radio has already interviewed the NDEers in all but two of those reports. With the two reports I'm about to read to you, NDE Radio's participation in this symposium is complete. The narrative inquiry and bioethics has given NDE Radio permission to read the final two of those uh, NDE stories, those of Dr. Ryan Burke and Jean uh, Barban. Both accounts are taken from the NIB, uh, NIB's NDE symposium titled Healthcare After a Near-Death Experience. The symposium was published in Muse by Johns Hopkins University Press, spring 2020. The NIB decided to do this collection of stories and commentaries to focus on something hardly recognized till now, how healthcare workers can best support patients who have an NDE. My associate producer, Lilia Smoilo, who, by the way, is a multiple experiencer herself, was one of the NIB's commentary authors of the symposium and is the neologist of the medical and spiritual gap of care of NDE patients. Her contribution helped frame the foundation of the symposium, and the NIB has thanked her as well for championing uh, this project and for all the work she did to help bring it to fruition. Her article, co-written with Dr. Diane Corcoran, is titled Closing the Medical Gap of Care for Patients Who Have Had a Near-Death Experience. For purposes of the symposium, the gap of care of NDEers is identified thusly. A medical and spiritual gap of care is created when a patient's self-report of a near-death experience is ignored, disregarded as non-factual, or misdiagnosed as an hallucination due to post-traumatic stress, hypoxia, an adverse reaction to drugs, anesthesia, or mental illness. This gap of care causes patients to lose confidence in expressing their NDE for fear of stigma and is evident in the symposium's NDE narratives. The link to read the entire NDE symposium and to contact Lilia is included in our show notes. 
So the first account is titled The First Time I Died by Dr. Rin Burke. Much of my life can be characterized as failure to die. In February 1962, I was 18 months old. My mother ironed my hand. She did this intentionally, as she did so many things. Medically, I know that I eventually went septic, required multiple surgeries, and developed scarlet fever. I was in the hospital for months. But what was outstanding in my memory was the pretty ambulance lights, which I associated with the pain stopping. When nerves are deeply burned away as with a third-degree burn, the pain stops. It is a small surprise that I always wanted to run an ambulance, which I eventually did. The first time I recall the experience of dying, I was eight years old. I had many severely painful plantar warts to the point where a breath of air or the slightest drag of a sock was excruciating. This was not a high-risk surgery. It was not common practice to explain anything to children. We were to shut up and do as we were told. When I was first admitted for surgery, and I had many surgeries by then and was quite comfortable in the hospital environment, I was hungry. Of course, we all know now that you do not eat prior to surgery, but nobody told me that. I found a bag of M&Ms in my bedside table and chowed down. I was uncomprehending when they came to transport me to surgery and everybody started screaming at me. Clearly, I had done something wrong, but I did not know what. As a severely abused child, my overarching objective was always to avoid attention, which brought pain. I always felt it was my job to avoid the abuse. I was very good at being very quiet, still and uh, disappearing in plain sight. Abused children always blame themselves. So the surgery was rescheduled. I was likely more carefully supervised, and I don't recall being hungry. In any case, the operating room was a dull pea-green color. The anesthesia mask was black rubber and stunk badly. In those days, they used ether and other volatile gases. We still use these, but you're put to sleep with an IV first and the gases no longer stink. I fought the mask, and I remember crying. Obviously, I was held down and physically overwhelmed. Much of medical interventions resemble rape. The next thing I remember is being up on the ceiling of the operating room, looking down at myself on the table. There was no distress or discomfort. I was alone, but felt that there was someone looking over me or looking out for me. I heard and saw everything going on in the OR. Initially, I detected no urgency. Then the anesthesiologist started sweating and double-checking his equipment. He reached over to the bag and started squeezing it manually. A woman who I think was a nurse started taking another blood pressure. The surgeon working on my foot looked up and decided to work a little faster. My experience was sort of like floating without any fear of falling. I was given a choice. I could join my relatives who were waiting for me. There would be no more pain. This was a totally okay choice that, I, that was available to me, but there was an undercurrent of another choice that might be more approved of, better, more exciting. The other choice was to go back and learn more. Clearly, the purpose was to learn. The objective was to learn everything possible. How fun is that? The choice was also clear, though, that there would be pain. I remember glancing back somehow. 
My relatives were not clear. They were more vague presences. They would wait. They did not feel that I needed to come now. Nothing would change. They would be there when I needed them. My choice was obvious. Reentry was not pleasant, jarring and harsh, with immediate pain. I told the OR team about what happened to me as they were wheeling me back to my room. One woman said, nonsense. I told her I knew she had not been in the room during the surgery. She was very angry when I said that. When the surgeon came in the next morning and I told him, he laughed as if I was a small child telling stories. My father, however, raised his right eyebrow and listened. A few weeks later, we were out getting donuts after mass, honey dip and Sprite for me, old-fashioned and regular coffee for him. And he said he had reviewed the medical record and possibly what I said was true. He told me about the UFOs he saw from the hospital balcony when I had scarlet fever. My father was Project Blue Book for the Department of Defense and could never explain those sightings. In our later years, he realized that from the age of six months, I have had a near-continuous, near-eidetic memory. In his 90s, he finally decided that I speak the truth. This near-death experience had a profound impact on me. I did not associate the presence I felt with the Roman Catholic God I was raised to believe in. The presence I felt more like a kind, welcoming counselor or teacher. I did not become religious from the experience. I did become a fanatic about information and learning. I remember my elementary school and and town turning out to search for me when I was missing for six hours. I was lost, in quotes, in the school library, reading through the entire section on world religions. I still love learning about world cultures. It was shortly after this operation that I took more than seven hours to look something up in our home encyclopedia because I kept getting caught up by so many interesting topics, particularly uh, biology-related topics. This is the first time I remember wanting to be a doctor, motivated more by wanting to know everything about how the body works rather than out of a desire to serve. I've had other near-death experiences. I attended Sleepaway Girl Scout camp every summer from the time I was six. We had assigned classes daily, including swimming and boating for all, and patrol chores that included cleaning lanterns and latrines. All girls helped clean up together after every meal. I adored it and thrived until one summer when the council bought a new camp and the older girls were switched to attend there. That camp was outfitted with wood cabins rather than those tents and flush toilets and showers. I hated it. There was an extremely limited swim area. Now, I was a stellar swimmer, and I was used to doing extra water survival classes in addition to regular swimming lessons. The swimming director was always challenged to come up with something to keep me busy and out of everyone's way. To be restricted to a small area where I could not even do laps was boring, to say the least. The deeper area of the swim section was also occupied by a massive granite boulder. I would sit cross-legged on it, underwater, for as long as I could hold my breath. One day my foot slipped into the crack in the boulder. I was trapped. I was calm. The sun was streaming through the water in a manner that is so vivid to me to this day. I knew I was out of air, but I I don't remember breathing in water or choking or anything. Again, I was peaceful. I am sure I passed out. I don't recall 
being rescued, just an ongoing vision of those glorious watery sunbeams. The presence again gave me the same choice as before in my prior NDE. It would be totally okay to stay and not go back, but there is still so much to learn. If I chose to return, it would be to be able to learn more. I don't know how much time passed. The next memory I have is being in my father's green station wagon being driven out of the camp. All my gear, like my old footlocker, was in the car, so clearly someone had packed me up. I was upset that I did not have the opportunity to thank the lifeguard. We drove to where my family was staying at a cottage on the Cape. I have no memory of being evacuated, evaluated rather, at a hospital. I never returned to that camp. Again, I was profoundly impacted. I'm not afraid of death. Death seems to be a comfortable transition. I think when I counsel patients in whatever stage they are, I do so without an underlying fear. Even if not discussing death specifically, my comfort level is, I think, reassuring. When I became a pediatric intensive care nurse, the unit I worked in had a 50% mortality rate. We were the referral center for the sickest of the sick. Children were flown in with everything from cancer, kidney failure, and heart-lung transplants to locally acquired severe trauma. I was there in the early stages of HIV. We lost our entire population of hemophiliacs and most sickle cell patients from contaminated blood products. Many nurses struggled with death and dying in pediatrics. I struggle with pain and distress, but not with dying. This made me uniquely competent to be able to stay present and available to these families. I later spent many months training in intensive care units for both adults and children because of my comfort level. I took a fellowship in hospice and palliative care. My near-death experiences have allowed me to contribute to numerous passings in a comforting and peaceful manner. Now, my second account today is titled, Do Angels Really Exist? by Jean Barbet. Jean wrote, Twice now I have been at the edge of death. When I was 44, I started feeling tired and my breathing had become difficult. I thought I had developed asthma, so I scheduled a doctor's appointment. The doctor ordered an x-ray and promptly sent me to a cardiologist to explain that I was in congestive heart failure. The only cure was a heart transplant. I was told I had uh, cardiomyopathy caused by a virus. The doctor suggested that I start taking heart medications. He couldn't say for sure how long the medications would sustain me. Three years later, the medications were no longer effective and my heart function started to severely deteriorate. I was admitted to the hospital and underwent a heart biopsy. My heart was so large and so weak, my body couldn't tolerate the test, and the doctor, doctors had to revive me using shock paddles. This was my first brush with death. I was immediately put on life support, where I was told to lie flat and keep my right leg straight. It was uncomfortable, and I was miserable. I was so weak that I had no energy to even feed myself. Not that I was very hungry. My husband fed me as much as he could. Thirteen long days passed. A heart was donated from a family in Montana. I was in the OR for 18 hours 
And once the surgery was completed, the surgeons were trying to get the heart to start functioning, but unfortunately that heart failed to begin beating on its own. Consequently, I was put on a second type of life support that did the work of a functioning heart. As the days passed, I got weaker and weaker, and my internal organs were failing. I was too sick to even pray for myself, and I had to depend on the prayers of others. On the eighth day, the surgical team was close to making the decision to take me off of all life support, but before my surgeon was able to consult with my husband about the plan, the surgeon's beeper went off, alerting him that there was another heart available. With no guarantee that I would survive another surgery, they decided to go ahead with a second transplant. This heart was a success. I received a heart from a young girl. Her family made the generous decision for her to be a total tissue donor. She not only saved my life, but helped eight others and enhanced the lives of up to 50 people. Every day I give thanks and feel a deep gratitude to my donor and her family. So often I think of the tragedy they endured, so heart-wrenching and their grief unimaginable. I love the medical staff as well. And now she goes to seeing my angels. Sometime during those tumultuous eight days, I had a remarkable thing happen. As I lay in the hospital bed, so weak and not able to move my body, I had a near-death experience. My chest was still open from surgery. All that protected my organs was a sterile plastic covering. I had tubes in my chest to drain the fluid from my lungs, a breathing tube, an IV, and monitors all around when I had a vision. Though I did not have the strength to turn my head and could not do so consciously, I saw two angels on my left side who were standing side by side. They were composed of light and had a dimension through them like foam. Their light was bright, but not blinding. They stood side by side, slightly smaller than the size of a doorway. They were gentle in spirit and emanated pure love. I emphasize pure because our word for love cannot describe fully the love I felt from them. The feeling was ineffable as these two angels were summoning me to come with them. I looked off to my right still unable to consciously or physically turn my head in any direction, and saw my husband, my cat, in the inside of my house. And when I looked back in the other direction towards the angels, they were gone. At that very moment, I was disappointed that they didn't stay with me. I wonder now if in that split second I had made the decision to stay and not go with them. Two other times they came to visit me, each time as entities. I could not see them, but could feel their presence behind me. Their love and their care for me were so strong and they gave me so much comfort. I knew I was going to get well. I shared my experience with one of my cardiologists and husband soon after. My doctor, who was non-judgmental, listened intently and said that he found it very interesting. My husband accepted my angels as being a viable vision and he shared my story with his close friends and they were amazed. Sixteen years after receiving the two heart transplants, I developed lymphoma, and it affected my internal organs. Again, I was acutely ill. My kidneys and liver were shutting down. I was on dialysis and given six rounds of chemotherapy. 
Through the Lord's grace, I had patience and a feeling of peace throughout my treatment program for the most part. Perhaps my angels were watching over me from a distance. I hadn't seen them since my heart transplants. I figured my time of transition was not imminent. At first, I dreaded having to go through the whole hospital routine again. My treatment consisted of two or three weeks at home and then seven days in the hospital to receive a 24-hour IV of the medication. Between the fourth and fifth treatment, I got restless and wished the whole thing could be over. Deep in my heart, I knew the cancer was gone, but didn't tell anyone. I was too timid to express my intuition, and I resigned myself to accept the protocol and finish the treatments. During the first two chemo treatments in the hospital, I was on pain medication, a derivative of morphine that gave me vivid hallucinations. After several doses of this drug, I finally told the nurses what was happening, and the doctors promptly stopped the medication. At first, I didn't want to tell them what was going on because I feared they might have thought I was crazy, so I let myself experience what was going on in my mind. I sat back and watched. The hallucination started off with scary visions of faces and lots of dark fabric draping the area in front of me. I kept trying to change these images into something more pleasant, but it didn't work. The faces and figures would come to my bedside, almost touching my face. They would disappear as fast as they appeared. As the drug wore on, the illusion started to change, and I saw white cloth that canopied over me as if I were in a tent. That was comforting. As the hallucinations progressed, the white cloth would dissolve, and then I would see elaborate stage sets. They were fabulous. It got to a point where as soon as I closed my eyes, I saw all of this. I would open my eyes, and it all disappeared. There was an unexplainable distinction between the hallucinations, my dreams, and my near-death experience. During both illnesses, I found my hallucinations to be extremely elaborate, wild, dreamlike images that were vivid, colorful, and sometimes disturbing. I remember another one where I was awake and asked my husband if he saw what I saw, but he didn't. I remember asking him over and over again, are you sure you don't see? It got frightening to think what I was seeing wasn't really there, but also knowing that it was drug-induced. My near-death experience was different. The angels were more like a visitation, and they tapped into my senses. They were communicating without spoken words, more like receptivity. From them, I felt peace. After my sixth treatment and another PET scan, I was declared cancer-free. Since my near-death experience, my faith has grown stronger, and I believe more firmly that heaven is a dimension where only good and love exists. It is my hope that anyone in the medical field who encounters someone that has had such an experience will listen non-judgmentally and perhaps share stories that they may have heard about near-death experiences from others. Well, that's the end of our two accounts for today. Many thanks to the NIB, Lilia Samoilo, and all those who contributed to the important medical symposium on NDEs. If listeners would like to hear this show again, or any of our more than 400 archived NDE interviews, go to TalkZone's NDE radio site and hit the Past Shows button, or subscribe to our YouTube channel, NDE Radio with Lee Whitting, where you can listen and comment on the complete NDE radio library. 
And for something completely different, be sure to like, follow, and share our new NDE Radio Facebook page and discover our Facebook group and link to our YouTube channel while you're there. Just search NDE Radio with Lee Whitting on your Facebook app with your desktop or mobile device and go to ions.org to listen and learn all about IONS 2021 Annual Conference, which begins on Zoom September 1st. Lilia and I will both be speaking at this year's conference. And listen again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern at TalkZone, for more NDE Radio. I'm your host, Lee Whitting, saying thanks for listening.